Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to sport our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee, or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe? We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. It is hard to believe that we have been having in-depth weekly conversations about movies since 2011. So many great conversations over the years about so many great movies. And some stinkers. Well, true. But you know, producing this show week after week requires a ton of work behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our Originals page when shopping for books and movies that we've covered. Just visit thenextreel.com slash originals. Your purchases made through our links give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these great discussions. In season three, we covered even more great adaptations like The Night of the Hunter and It Happened One Night, both part of our Couples on the Run series. We talked about No Country for Old Men. The Coen brothers so rarely adapt someone else's work. We had some fun rom-com adaptations like About a Boy, based on the Nick Hornby novel, and Nick and Nora's Infinite Playlist, adapted from Rachel Cohn and David Levithan's book. In our terribly and naively named foreign language series, we discussed the brilliant City of God and the Diving Bell and the Butterfly, which I won't ever be able to watch again, ever. But could you read the original memoir? I don't know, maybe? We had our Richard Dysart series with adaptations like The Day of the Locust and Being There. Plus, we had that fantastic interview with the man himself. <laughs> the one where we had him sit on the floor? Because this chair was so squeaky. <laughs> Good times. We did our first Tom Hanks series with Forrest Gump adapted from Winston Groom's novel, plus Apollo 13 based on Lost Moon by Jim Lovell. And we did another year series looking at films from 1981, including Das Boot, Gallipoli, and Thief, all based on books. Listeners can dive deeper into all of these original stories and more at thenextreel.com slash originals. Every book, play, movie, video game. Video game. <laughs> you bet. We have talked about some video game adaptations as well. It doesn't matter the source, just follow the link. Every purchase supports the podcast. Check out the full list at thenextreel.com slash originals and get reading, watching, performing, or playing today. I'm Pete Wright. And I'm Andy Nelson. Welcome to The Next Reel. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. 
In just a matter of seconds, you're going to hear a classic episode of this show from back in the day when we called ourselves Movies We Like. It took us a while to settle into the show's format, so you'll notice some differences as you listen to these episodes. For instance, it takes us a bit of time to actually get into the conversation about the movie. Things like that. But we're still proud of the conversations about the movies themselves, and we think they're worth keeping in the library. So enjoy these episodes from our back catalog. And you can become part of our Discord community, learn more about the show, and find out how you can become a supporting member at thenextreel.com. So thank you, everybody, for downloading and listening to The Next Reel. We appreciate your time and attention, and we hope you enjoy the show. I'm not going to listen to this. I'm not going to hear this now. <laughs> I want to kill everyone. Satan is good. Satan is a pal. <laughs> <laughs> This is the next reel, everybody. Thank you so much for uh, joining us. My name is Pete Wright, and that over there is Andy Nelson. Say hello to good people, Andy. Hi-ho. And uh, you can find us at thenextreel.com, and you really should, should go do that, because you know that Andy, he is a diligent little monkey, and what he does after every show is he goes and he writes up what we've talked about and puts them in these, this fancy show notes, and I take the links and we put them all together, and that's where the show notes live. And sometimes I think people, uh, you know, you go over to Facebook and you go over to, to you know, six of you go over to Google Plus and, uh, you know, Twitter, <laughs> and you, you look at there, but you miss a lot of the, the show notes and the links and details and the trailers we talk about. So head over to the next reel, and if you, if you, you know... Uh, subscribe to the show. You can visit the the website there and, and participate in the discussion there. It'd be really awesome. You can subscribe to the show for free in iTunes. And you know we do appreciate uh, your kind comments and and five star reviews. If you like the show, if you like what we've been doing for these last nay over two years, we've been doing this. Uh, if you if you appreciate what we do for uh, how we ruin movies, wait, spoil movies. <laughs> we appreciate your comments uh, accordingly. And uh, you can find us where other social platforms, uh, you know, fine social platforms exist. And with that, Dr. Nelson, could you please give us an update on the listener's choice? That was possibly the worst drum roll I've ever heard. As Peter has a seizure, let me... Do you know I'm not actually sure what happened there. I think I may, I think I may have thought drum roll and did drowning. <laughs> Something like that. I yes. think I just delivered drowning. Tell, please I, tell I the people did. what. <laughs> tell us about the uh, listener choice. So as as listeners of the show know, we've been uh, we threw a, a challenge out there that uh, anyone who commented on the show. We would throw those names in a hat and draw a name out, and that person would get to pick a movie for us to talk about on the show coming up. That will be our listener's choice. And the first one, we did the drawing, and the first listener's choice, the name picked was Steam Robot. So that is our dear friend, uh, Stephen Smart. Yay! And uh, yeah, Yay! congratulations, Stephen. We're going to be in touch. Uh, with you or get in touch with us and we are going to uh, coordinate something so that we can get a movie picked from you and then we're going to watch it and talk about it. Can't wait. Very excited. I think we're doing that in just a couple of weeks from now. So Yeah. So we'll get Be that on the lookout. Pretty quickly. Yes, indeed. And, uh, okay, so now uh, speaking of contests, 
Uh, how's the pony prize? How did you, know, you how did you fare this week, Andy? I you know I did pretty good. I did uh, I did I did better <laughs> last <laughs> week. Last week, you know, we didn't bring up it last week's. Um, uh, Cameron L. Ryan got it. I swear, I don't know how she figured this out. I I put a picture of an airplane landing, and she's <laughs> like, "Oh, that's Die Hard." How <laughs> in. <laughs> I, I have no idea. I have no idea how she figured that out, but she nailed it. Fist right with your toes. Fist with your toes. <laughs> so this week I, I, I tried digging a little deeper, and uh, it took three tries. It took three images, and Robot Gremlin uh, did get it after the third try. Hope and Glory, the John Borman film from uh, the late 80s. And so congratulations, Robot Gremlin. You are again entered to win the Pony Prize. Are you pulling these off of your... Uh... Like how how far back in your collection are you digging? Like when are, are have you dug into your uh, elusive uh, laser disc collection? <laughs> Those elusive laser discs all escaped. <laughs> I have what? area one. Are you what? Okay, what? maybe I have a couple. I think I kept a couple for posterity's sake. Wow. I know. I know. No, Speaking... I just kind of. Go I go all over the place to pick these movies. I, I, I kind of grab them from anywhere. I like it. Oh. Speaking of posterity, Steve made fun of me. Uh, blog whisperer Steve Sarmento made fun of me because of my bat can. I took pictures <laughs> of it. I, I need to post them on the website because it's it's important that people are aware of just how perfect condition my bat can is. <laughs> it is important. It's the only it's the only thing that I've kept. I, everything else is has gone pretty much digital, but. My bat can is with me at all times, and I have a ship in a bottle. Those are the two, the two things of history that I've kept: ship in a bottle, bat can, and this chair. But that's all. <laughs> all I need is this lamp. <laughs> I'm so gearing up for the guilty pleasure bit. Oh my! Ah, I know uh, that's like months away. And I know. Uh, I'm already thinking about champing it. Champing at the bit. I've been thinking about it since we decided to do it months ago. <laughs> I know you keep telling me, oh, I've got another one to add to the list. I'm My list is like 300 movies long. <laughs> <laughs> That's a lot of guilt you have. Terrible. Terrible. No, You're no. guilty. What? You probably have five well-positioned films on your list. Yeah, I get. I, uh, I I I have a struggle trying to figure out if my guilty pleasures are guilty enough. <laughs> 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 Do I have enough guilt for this? Is this guilt I share, or <laughs> is this just me? I think it's going to be really fantastic, super fantastic. It is going to be fun. Can we? Uh, like, I want to. I just. Uh, do we have things to talk about? Have you seen something this week that we need to talk about? Well, I think what we should mention maybe is is the Oscar nominations. Should we? Are mention we going to do that? I, you know, let's mention it as a pre-mention. Yes, pre-mention it because because it's out. The Oscars are out, and we, we would be remiss if we didn't acknowledge that the Oscar uh, nominations came out. And I just want to know, first of all, just give me a, are you happy, are you sad? You know, I'm, I'm, I'm happy for the most part. I, it, you know, I think it was a year of a lot of really great projects, and so inevitably things are going to get left by the wayside. The thing that most I'm disappointed with as far as getting left by the wayside is Tom Hanks for Best Actor for yeah. Captain Phillips. Yep. Makes me yeah. sad. You know, I think, I, I think uh, was it? But I don't know who I'd cut out. I don't know who I'd chop off that block. 
you know, it was, uh, I actually want to bring this up uh, because I think she's absolutely right. It was, uh, Amy, uh, who was it who wrote this? Was it Amy on our Facebook page who, who left us a comment about uh, the Captain Phillips uh, snub? Snub. That was very frustrating. And, uh, you know, I, I think it really highlights, there are a couple of other ones. I think, uh, uh, you know, Mr. Banks yeah. Uh, was Emma, it, Thompson. Emma Thompson was a was a miss, but uh, it was Amy Shaw, our, our friend of the show, Amy Shaw, a bit surprised that Tom Hanks didn't get a nod for either of the two films he was in. The ending of Captain Phillips was a masterclass, some of his best work, and I I think that's I, I you know I think a lot of people are sharing that. Yeah, experience. absolutely, absolutely. So, uh, so yes, the Oscar nominations came out. We talk about movies. It might seem a little odd. We're not going to talk about movies, but we're making time uh, with the film board. We got the film board uh, this weekend mm-hmm. uh, with the uh, uh, you know the, the blog whisperer Steve Sarmento is going to be joining us. Uh, we've got uh, Tommy Handsome, Tom Metz going to be joining us, and uh, I'm not sure there have been murmurs that we might have some voices from the past. Yeah, I, I the the surly Chad Stoops. He possibly so, uh, might be uh, making an appearance. Making an appearance, we hope so. Yeah, we shall see. Uh, but yeah, so we're going to be talking uh, Jack Ryan, Shadow Recruit. Was you that did, my you just, voice? No, you know what happened? You just jinxed what? it. You just jinxed it's now gonna be crappy because it's now it's probably that voice is all over it. <laughs> that's awesome. Uh, so that's this weekend. The power uh, of we my gonna... voice, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> <laughs> Destroying films left and right. You you are single-handedly responsible for LA's slow d- slow and dismal uh, dissolution from Hollywood industry. Uh so uh, here here we have um it, you sent me a link that I found uh, fantastic. Speaking of Oscars. The yeah, random I think, I think this is more fun to talk about than the Oscar nominees. Totally. <laughs> the random Oscar winner generator. This is from uh, Time Magazine. Thank you Time or entertainment.time.com, and we'll put the link uh, on Facebook in the show notes um, where you can just click on this little button, and it. what do they do? Can you explain they analyzed, what they did? Yeah, Time Magazine analyzed 242 Best Picture nominees and created an algorithm that basically generates storylines for movies that could potentially have been an Oscar-caliber nomination, like this one. In 1970s Florida, a widow, a baby, and a princess confront forgiveness family tragedy, and illiteracy. <laughs> now, what I love so much about it is that on the uh, if you visit it on the webpage, you can hover over the uh, major components of the line and see what specifically what Oscar-winning film inspires right. those words. And so mine, for example, is in suburbia, a psychotic war veteran and an Italian spy struggle with a dysfunctional family, fear, and police corruption. <laughs> now, of course, if you really look at that, those are just words strung together that mean nothing. But Suburbia was inspired by American Beauty, Psychotic by Toy Story 3, War Veteran by No Country for Old Men, <laughs> Italian uh, by The English Patient, uh, Spy by A Beautiful Mind, Dysfunctional Family by Little Miss Sunshine, Fear, again, The English Patient, and Police Corruption, Goodfellas. 
And so, so you just cute. keep refreshing it. Marriage, mathematics, and a relationship and a friendship mix in Boston for an African American police officer, an orphan, and an Irish American. This is great. In 1930s New York City, a Muslim doctor, an Indian professor, and a teacher confront justice, premarital sex, and class. <laughs> In a bar. <laughs> oh, it's just it's, silly. It is. Uh, it's good fun. So it's, this, uh, is, this is great for my uh, screenwriting class. It, I should totally this and say, okay, write something based on this. <laughs> I, I want a treatment in uh, three days based on in 20th Uh-oh. century Houston... An American athlete and a coach cope with wealth, police corruption, and mob violence. <laughs> and mob violence. <laughs> In Houston. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's 20th, the 20th century is based on Gandhi. Houston is based on Ray. That's awesome. <laughs> anyway, so that's awesome. And uh, everybody needs to go play with that. Yeah, we'll throw the link in our show notes. <laughs> You go first. I've gone first uh, many weeks in a row. I am very excited about this movie that I'm going to be talking about. It's Dom Hemingway, uh, Jude Law's new film that is coming out in April. It looks just ridiculous and over the top. And uh, there's actually a few trailers. The one specifically that uh, we're going to post on the site is is one of the Red Band trailers. And, I mean, it just looks – he is just such an over-the-top character. I have so much fun watching this this trailer. It just makes me laugh to no end. If you watch one of the other ones, like the more recent one, you get a better sense of the story. He comes back in contact with his long-lost daughter. This is a guy who's been in prison for 12 years, and now he's out trying to figure out what he's doing with his life. Uh, so he reconnects with his daughter and tries to kind of figure out what's going on in his life and everything. It looks a lot more touching when you watch the regular Green Band trailer, but when you watch the Red Band you get all the raucous, uh, riot, riotous nature of Jude Law, and it's just hilarious. I, I just laugh every time I watch it. It looks great, 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 and um, and plus it's got the wonderful Richard E. Grant in it, who I haven't seen in quite a while, but he's one of those I'm... actors that I just always loved, and he looks really funny in this. El Machina del Oro. That's right, friends. The gold machine. Oh, uh, I think we're jumping into guilty pleasure territory here. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I loved that movie. Uh, God forbid. <laughs> that was that was where I fell in love with Richard Grant the first time. Yeah. Hudson Hawk. Yeah. Shut it, Andy. I think for me it was L.A. Story. I always loved him in that one. But... <laughs> he was great at that film, too. Not yeah. as good as Hudson Hawk. <laughs> Uh, uh, when's it? When does it come out? Did you say that already? Uh, April, I believe it's April fourth. I don't have it right in front of me. You know, the, the Red Band is interesting. The Red Band trailers. We'll post the Red Band on the website, and I, I think the Red Band is uh, is a better. Well, obviously, it's. I think it's a more kind of authentic uh, depiction of the show of the film. Yeah. Um, you know, you get a better sense, but you really get a better sense. Of, um, you know, of, of uh, see, I've already forgotten his name. Not Richard E. Grant. Jude Law's Jude, performance. Yeah. I mean, he, he he looks great. He looks great. He pulls off this, like, unfrozen caveman hipster uh, <laughs> role in a, a really great way. I, I can't wait to see it. 
That's all. And some and some of the dialogue in the script, uh, Richard Shepard wrote and directed this. The dialogue, it just makes me laugh the way that they play some of these scenes out, like when he's confronting the guy who owes him money and he's wanting his ticker tape parade. I just can't stop laughing through that whole little... <laughs> Uh, monologue that he has about getting getting what is his due. So. Yeah, right. <laughs> and I love the poster for this too. Him sitting in that giant red chair with the giant uh, photo of the baboon over his head. <laughs> <laughs> Such a strange image. Yeah, it looks really good. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so that's my trailer. My trailer is also an April trailer, April eighteenth, two thousand fourteen. This is Joel Surnow's Small Time, starring Dean Norris and Christopher Maloney. And I like this movie for a couple of reasons. Oh, and Bridget uh, Moynihan, the lovely Bridget Moynihan. Mm. Um, the I this movie looks interesting to me first of all because it's it's exercising some demons for me that this because it's about a kid's first sales job as a used car salesman, he decides not to go to college and uh, decides to sell cars, uh, used cars. And, um, you know, that was my, my first job was not selling. I was driving used cars from, you know, Pueblo to Denver and through Colorado Springs through the, for this used car dealership. And it was the kind where you just, you know, spray chrome on a rusted bumper kind of a place. And, uh, and so I just, I, this, it feels right there. Like, yeah. it just feels so good to me. But the other reason I like this uh, film is that I'm just wildly curious about Joel Surnow uh, as a director of feature films. Yeah. We know of the Joel Surnow from uh, 24, uh, and pretty much all of 24. He's been a producer of of 24 for a long, long time. He produced the uh, Kennedys uh, miniseries, wrote and produced and directed uh, the Kennedys and 24, the India version. He is uh, a writer of 24, Live Another Day, coming is which is in pre-production, due out later in 2014. Um, and so, you know, he's, you know, spent a lot of time uh, in this universe of 24. And uh, uh, he's this is, as far as I know, his first feature film, certainly his first written and directed feature film. Uh, it, it is definitely his first... Uh, feature film direction i think it's well and it's definitely his his first theatrical i mean he has right. done some tv movies like well yeah 20, he, and he's 24 been, movie 24 redemption he did that he did that's true and he's that yeah. he's been working i mean he's one of my very favorite shows i you know for the longest time uh was the equalizer remember that oh yeah way back in the that 80s. was him in 85 86 mm-hmm. uh he was a supervising producer for that show but um you know uh, anyway, he's been around a long time, and I'm I'm just interested in seeing him kind of bring this story. This seems like such a modest story, or maybe a humble story, uh, for this guy who's been so um, kind of uh, ensconced in intrigue, right, for so yeah. many years. It doesn't have at all any of the you know action thriller vibe at all. I mean, this is definitely. It has that indie feel of this kid trying to figure out what to do with his life, joining his father selling used cars for a summer. Right. And along with his uh, his crazy buddy, played by the wonderful Dean Norris. Yeah, you know, uh, Dean Norris uh, from, uh, well, Breaking Bad most, yeah. oh. most recently. Yeah. Looks good. I, I so I'm I'm really curious about this film. I, I think it's going to be interesting, and um, definitely check it out. Trailer on the next dot com. 
I'm Chance, the gardener. The gardener? Yes. Since I was a child, I worked in this garden. Then you really are a gardener? Oh, yes. May I ask your name? <coughs> Chance the Gardener. Mr. Chancey Gardener, are you related to Basil and Perdita Gardener? No, I'm not related to Basil and Perdita. Gobbledygook. You know, Chauncey, there's something about you. You don't play games with words to protect yourself. Had no brains at all. Stuffed with rice pudding between the ears. On television, Mr. President, you look much smaller. Dumb as a jackass. As long as the roots are not severed, all is well. And all will be well in the garden. Yes, it is surprising. And look at him now. I can't write. Well, I heard he speaks eight languages. I can't read. I like to watch TV. All you gotta be is white in America to get whatever you want. I understand. We're doing Being There this evening. This is uh, uh, Being There, 1979 uh, a film directed by Hal Ashby, written by Jerzy Kaczynski, who uh, wrote the novel, the novella, really, I, I guess. Uh, starring Peter Sellers, Shirley McLean, Melvin Douglas, a uh, well-regarded film. This being there, yes, indeed, it definitely was, and uh, it, it's a film that I think definitely holds up. I mean, it really is a film of its time. You really feel the '70s in this film, but even with that in the film, it still uh, really holds up, and it just feels, um, in a way timeless kind of like network does which another film that interestingly kind of has deals with the media but also uh feels like something that still is relatable to today you know i i had a same the same sort of reaction um that that this film is is kind of the genetic precursor of films like big and the truman show um but you know network is obviously a a a key sibling. What I like so much about this movie really isn't in the movie itself. It's in it's in you know Peter Sellers' portrayal of this film, uh, in this film uh, as Chance the Gardener, and it, it is because you know you use the word timeless. I think this this film is dated. Uh, you know, you feel the seventies in it, but not in Chance the Gardener. Yeah, and he is so rock solid from start to finish in this film that he is you just can't stop looking at him you can't yeah. stop looking at him it's amazing he's great this i mean peter sellers he really like he read this book and he pursued jersey kaczynski uh very heavily to get this role in fact he wrote uh, Kaczynski a telegram sent it to him and said available in my garden or outside of it see gardener and gave him a phone number and then when Kaczynski called it was Peter Sellers and he said this character is created for me to play on the screen since my heart attack in 1964 my life has been dictated by chance most actors want to play Othello but all I've really wanted to play is chance the gardener 
really interesting that this is the role that that he really connected with. And if you look at his his career, I mean, it was it was a lot of ups and downs and just wild comedies and stuff. But this film is the one that, to me, always stands out as the highlight of his career. I mean, I definitely enjoy some of his Pink Panther movies and just some of the, the wacky comedies that he was in. But this is the one for me that will always be the standout Peter Sellers film. I prefer to think of being there as sort of his his statement on the craft. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and it's his statement on the craft in the way he removes everything for which he is otherwise known as an artist. Mm-hmm. This is this is uh, Peter Sellers' Tabula Rasa, you know, and I I I really appreciate that. This is uh, this is sort of Bill Murray in Lost in Translation. This is. Um, this is this is that stripping back of of all the artifice, and he, you know, Peter Sellers was. Uh, th- this was a guy known for artifice, yeah. Uh, from Strange Love to you know uh, Fu Manchu to Pink Panther to I mean this was uh, this was what he was known for, uh, and I I think being there is uh, you know it goes it's a funny film it it starts with this sort of tale of innocence you know we have this Chance the Gardener who is. Um, you know, I I would use normally use the word deeply shaken by the loss of his boss, who's worked for all his life. He was sort of, you know, raised by when his when his boss, this wealthy industrialist, dies, and they close the house for which Chance was the the sole gardener. Uh, I I there is no indication that he was actually deeply shaken by this at all. He he moves on and and is just sort of uh propelled through life in a really kind of organic fashion through you know kind of a man out of time yeah and it, it, interesting that also regarding the old man that he works for it's never really clear i mean was it his father who is this guy i mean right. he says he's been doing this taking care of the garden since he was a boy so it it's it's very vague and i like that they never really feel the need to to clarify that it's always just kind of this mystery as to his relationship with the old man and how long he's really been there. And, but clearly it's been a long time where, you know, he gets to pick the old man, pick through the old man's clothes to where he, uh, you know, he's always getting these gifts of televisions that uh, the old man is always giving him. It feels like definitely more of kind of a father son relationship rather than kind of what he would do for an employee. Um, but knowing kind of the nature of chance and kind of this, this way that he thinks and the way that, you know, he's just much slower sort of character. Um, maybe the boss was just a boss and a guy kind soul taking pity on him. I mean, you never really know. And I, I, I like that. I do too. Uh, it, it's like the, the, the first uh, kind of, I don't know, the first third of the film is it's like watching a painting you know, kind of un, unroll or unravel, kind of reveal itself. And and so he's propelled, Chance the Gardener, he is propelled through this this now new universe. It's it's sort of the experience I get when I take my indoor cats, you know, out to the garage. You know, they, right. they you know, it's just this sort of new world that he's kind of getting used to. And he deal he gets to, to you start seeing what it looks like when this innocence is confronted by race. And uh, you know, his mistaken identity ends up uh, sort of um, becoming the eponymous direction of the uh, of the rest of the film, as he is propelled by chance uh, into these situations that that lead him all the way to um, you know becoming a, 
an advisor to another rich industrialist in meeting the president of the United States. Mm-hmm. And then the film, thanks to Shirley MacLaine, or Shirley uh, 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 MacLaine, becomes uh, a vaudevillian sex romp. <laughs> yes, yes, I'm sure we'll talk a little bit more about that soon. Yeah. You know, something, speaking what you said earlier about his, uh, the way that he reacts to the old man's death, I did find it very interesting this time watching how, I mean, he does have that quiet moment once, like, he clearly does, he clearly gets it, like, when Louise tells him, he doesn't really have much of a reaction other than to kind of turn back to the TV and watch the TV. It just seems like things take a little longer to sink in because then she leaves and then we see him kind of go up and see the old man's body lying in the bed. He kind of, you know, puts his hand on his head and then he just sits on the bed for a minute and has kind of a quiet moment before he realizes what it is that he's going to have to do. He packs his bag and he leaves. That's a very interesting moment that he has there. Likewise, uh, I think it's interesting that later in the film, when Rand dies, that's the moment when we really see him having a much more emotional reaction. And we actually, as he's talking to uh, the doctor, uh, wonderfully played by Richard Dysart, he actually has tears in his eyes at that point. And it's like he's there's there's a better sense of recognition of what's going on there. You know, and again, we don't know the relationship of him with the old man, but it seems like there was another form of that relationship that had been kindled with Rand, the industrialist, and and I like that how how again when when Rand dies, you really get that emotional moment from him, and we get that sense of loss from him. And that's that's one of the things that I have a hard time sort of rationalizing. Right? Is that that sense of emotional journey of chance over the course of these. Uh, you know, these two hours, that he he starts, I think his reaction to the loss of his first boss, mm-hmm. it's very much to me, uh, reads as if he is uh, responding the way one of his favorite characters on the television would respond. Right. Do you know what I'm saying? It's, it's sort of, um, you know, manufactured. And I think you're right. Uh, over the course of the, the film, by the time we hit uh, Rand's death, I do see uh, a, a hint of of a broadened reaction, you know, and I, I yeah. feel like he is, um, you know, he he's more present. He he has grown as a result of these new interactions that he's had with these new people in his life, and I I like the way that's played. I I wonder, I you know, what's your thought on um, his? attachment to the television over the course of the film and its and its relationship to him being able to or, or or to the way he is portrayed as you know heavy air quotes here growing well you know it's that's interesting because i think you know i don't think that the protagonist of your story always needs to be the one that is is growing no i no, think no. I think your protagonist is always going to, or I, I, I take that back. I think your protagonist will always grow in some way, but they're not necessarily always changing. There, is, there can be a level of growth, a level of, of increased understanding in their world. Um, but I think in the case of this film, I think Chance um, is changing those around him, and uh, particularly the Doctor, who I think is the is the one who really kind of has his eyes open to everything that's going on, right? 
And I think Chance does grow. I mean, for him, it really is all about finding a place to live to a certain extent. But I think, I don't know, I think he finds a sense of um, uh, further development with real people. And I mean, it's not that the old man and Louise weren't real people. It's just we don't know the relationship, but based on the fact that Louise was basically the the maid at the house and she did kind of help take care of him. But it was a very different sort of relationship than what he's now come to find with with Shirley MacLaine and Rand and Jack Warden, the president and everyone else in the world who in in a way they're really kind of listening to him now you know and he's just he's just kind of spouting stuff about gardening and it's very vague and it's interesting stuff that uh becomes uh becomes meaningful even though it's very meaningless um it's it is exactly what what tv in a way it's all about it's all about these sound bites and it's about you know getting these words out that can be read to mean something great but in reality it's just kind of you know fluff and that's really what he becomes good at because of uh, because of watching so much tv i think is he just he speaks about gardening and he speaks in just little sound bites and it becomes you know people take that for what they need to take it as when he's talking to jack warden the president about you know the garden um there will be hard times but as long as the roots are 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 untouched and remain uh remain solid or whatever i can't he says and um there will come growth in the spring and he starts saying these just interesting things that everybody starts interpreting as these grandiose ideas and i think that's the interesting thing about him and the nature of tv and the nature of media is he in a sense is kind of this cipher speaking uh speaking about gardening in the language of sound bites that he's picked up from TV and it enables everybody to interpret it for what they need it to mean. But don't you think, I mean, I absolutely agree with you. I really do. And I, I also agree that there is, um, you know, we don't need the protagonist to be the one who grows. And I think that is, you know, Chance's role is one that is to educate through kind of blind innocence, uh, the, this, you know, world around him that has gone so complex and political and cynical. I mean, what we see with this, what becomes, uh, thankfully, uh, you know, for the the drama of the film itself, thankfully it becomes a, an averted witch hunt, um, you know, but we see them go down this road of being super cynical about Chance. He doesn't have a background, so there must be something wrong. We can't find right. anything out about him, so there must be something he's hiding. And And that's true. But at the same time, at this very personal level with Chance, when you when you bring up the you know the way we see him respond um, to the death of his new boss, mm-hmm. um, you know, in that that brief instance, right? We see a reflection of that world on him, and I think it's a very special uh, reflection when you see the tears in his eyes and you see that. That moment that maybe here's this middle-aged guy who you know has never grown up uh, begin to to grow yeah. and, and to learn those those lessons that he needed to learn through his interactions with these people as oblivious as they are um, you know with the exception of of doctor the doctor um, Allensby what's that his name 
Yeah, Allenby, right. Allenby. I, you know, I think that is very uh, a very smart point about that and how through these interactions and through becoming kind of a voice for the people, it has kind of put him in a situation where he's now kind of stepping out of the world that he's always lived in. Just like we've seen him physically step out, now he's mentally stepping out. And now when Rand dies, it does affect him in a way that when the old man dies, didn't. And perhaps that is why, you know, when he goes to Rand's funeral, he walks away and, and it's, it's like he's now kind of achieved a little more enlightenment, which kind of could potentially lead to that last moment that we see of Chance where he, you know, walks across the water. Yeah, sure. I mean, I guess, you know, there you go. You brought well, it up. You, you already said that we spoil things, so I'm not holding back. La, 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 la. <laughs> Tell me what you think about it. I think it's great. La, 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 la. Do you see what I did there? Yeah, yeah. Uh All right, here's the thing. Uh, I want to, well, first of all, definitely, uh, you know, I want to talk about that last sequence uh, because I think it's really important um, to to the film because what we see is, in in fact, after that brief flash of awareness and wisdom from chance in the moment of the passing, the moment of awareness when Dr. Allenby becomes aware that, that chance is who he said he was all along, that there was no conspiracy, he was not lying at any point. It was a complete case of mistaken messaging, mistaken identity, everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and you get that sort of aha moment from him. And then we go back to Chance being Chance. And, yeah. and he is the same guy we've seen. That's that, that bit of consistency of Peter Sellers playing it just rock solid straight through the film. He, he, it, it's the funeral. Uh, they, the, uh, the political machinations are still going on. At mm-hmm. the funeral, as the pallbearers are discussing, you know, the next uh, presidential candidate, and we see Chance. Um, the next presidential candidate potentially being Chance. Potentially being Chance, yes. And he, he, uh, he there's a, a branch has fallen by the side of this river. Chance is going on a walk during the funeral uh, proceeding. Uh, and a branch is, has fallen on a sapling, and he, he lifts up the branch and treats the sapling because you know here he is he's a gardener and then he goes and he walks straight up across the water yeah. uh, on the surface of the water and and there is no evidence of any submerged pier there is no um he, he is there, there's no sign that it's anything other than um you know chance walking chance on the water. Wash, walking on water uh what does that mean I I I I think it can be read in a lot of different ways. I mean, he he has gained enlightenment and now is kind of transcended to a higher level or something. Or perhaps he has been transformed by society into something that uh, that they needed to be the one that they they want to transform them. Kind of like a Jesus figure who is somebody that speaks truths that they are able to take away and do something with i mean clearly that's kind of the case of what's happened here is as soon as shirley mclean uh and her driver first injure him from that point forward it's just constant uh uh you know misreadings of everything that he says and everything that he does as something that's much greater basically i think that 
um, I, I, I don't know. It's one of those interesting endings. They don't really come out and say what it's about, but I mean, I think that's what it is, is, is basically he has become this kind of uh, savior of the people, somebody who can speak and they can take those words and find what they need to in those words. Uh, and again, because of the nature of him coming from the world of media, watching TV all his life, he speaks in sound bites, which again are meaningful and meaningless at the same time. He is, um, yeah, and and I think you know, as you say, meaningful and meaningless at the same time. I think the same uh, you know sentiment can be applied to this last sequence. Oh yeah, uh, I, yeah, that, and that too. And, and I think, in a way, that's a reflection upon us too, yeah. as the audience. Yeah, yeah, it really is. And I, you know, it it becomes uh, sort of a hammer over the head uh, uh, kind of delivery of the allegory that has been hinted at through the course of the film, and uh, particularly the second half of the film. Um, even it it is, uh, you know, buried in this what becomes. Uh, Kind of a political, very sort of subtle and gentle political satire in through throughout most of the film. I I, I think it is very even handed, uh, and and sort of delightfully dry witty, um, uh, dry wit. Uh, so a, as he's walking across this this water, he bends down and he uh, you know he sticks his umbrella into the water and you see it go all the way through the surface all the way down so it's, you know it's literally him just walking on the water and and um, it, it's such a wonderful play back to you know the cartoons that he's watching you know the wily e. coyote cartoons you know it's it's it his innocence the weight of his innocence is it's so light that he literally floats on on water that that you know he has he has not succumbed to the cynicism of the world around him, even as in his experience of it. Therefore, he does not know that he's not supposed to be able to walk on water. Yeah, and I think that's I think that's a beautiful message. Now, what comes after that? Um, I would love you to share your thoughts on. <laughs> well, uh, okay, I guess we're moving into that territory now. Uh, you know. Interestingly, when you cast Peter Sellers in a film like this, where he's playing this really unique character that is really straight and just says things almost with this uh, naive innocence and just just straightforward truthfulness, um, you're going to get um, a lot of great footage to use. You're also going to get, when it's Peter Sellers, a lot of really funny footage to use. And... They chose to basically kind of over the credits do a gag reel of a lot of the the funny bits that he does, and it's funny. I definitely think that it's funny. I, my problem is that it really just takes me out of the movie right away, and I really like the place where I'm at at the end of the movie. And don't get me wrong, I love watching those bits. I just wish it was like a special feature. And actually on the on the Blu-ray, they actually have a whole special feature of a whole bunch more of those things, which are really fun to watch. But I don't know. It's just It really just pulls me out of it. And Peter Sellers, actually, when he heard that Hal Ashby was going to do that, because Hal saw these outtakes and thought it was hilarious and wanted to put them in over the end credits. And uh, this film opened at uh, the Cannes Film Festival, and uh, Peter... Uh, really pushed 
to get them pulled out of the end credits. He felt that it just kind of ruined the tone of the film and he could never get them to agree and they left it in there. And, uh, you know, some people say that that alone is the thing that cost him the Oscar that year because his performance is so great. But then you see that goofiness at the end and you realize, oh, it's just an act. And it kind of takes it, takes you out of it. And, you know, that's their... I don't know. I don't know how people voted for the Oscars, but when you watch this performance next to Dustin Hoffman and Kramer versus Kramer, I don't know. I, I think I would probably go with Peter Sellers. To the, to the best of my memory, there is no gag reel at the end of Kramer versus Kramer. I don't believe there is. Well, and to that point, uh, you know, it, it's not a complete reel, right? It's not like a Will Ferrell no. reel. It is one. It, it's a repeated take of yeah. one scene that that eventually was shortened in the actual film because of the trouble that he had getting it out. Uh, and it's a scene of him recalling the uh, the gang, uh, right? The message, the message the to gang. Raphael, right? Right. Um, and and it is it's hysterical uh seeing now i'm i don't want to you know try to put thoughts in to to armchair hal ashby <laughs> it would be i'd be wildly out of place but i'll tell you why i like it and i think it's i i think there you know there's certainly room to to argue this but the the allegory at the end of him walking across the water is a surprise Right. It's it is, you know, can you imagine uh, Forrest Gump running across the water uh, at the end of Forrest Gump? You know, you know what I mean? Like it, it takes you a little bit out of the film, like out of the innocence of the film and, and sort of puts this character in uh, in a much higher plane than we had uh, experienced. And it, it becomes very heavy, very, very quickly with this visual allusion to the savior. Right. Right. And I think bringing back this, um, you know, this particular gag uh, uh, alleviates some of the the pressure that otherwise builds up really quickly. It sort of releases that valve and says, you know what, this was, let's, you know, to me, it was just a a reminder that, you know, let's not be, let's not take it to a cynical place. Let's not take it to a judgmental place. Let's just laugh with Peter. And um, and have a good time at this thing. He did a great job, and 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 let's relax a little bit. And I found it really um, very powerful, uh, a powerful mixture of kind of the salt and the sweet. Well, and to that point, I mean, I will give you that when you're looking at the meaning of the film and the context of all of the meaning that comes from everything that uh, that Chance says whether there is meaning to it or whether it's meaningless gardener fluff in a way that by adding the gag reel at the end, it does play into that as well. If you're taking like the message of the ending to have this high and mighty meaning as to what chance really is. And then by adding a gag reel there, it does kind of make you step back and go, Oh, well maybe I'm reading too much into this. Yeah. That, that was my sense too, because you're, I mean, to your point, all of his stuff about gardening and sowing and reaping, mm-hmm. as soon as he walks on water, that stuff has, you know, it, it connects in a very yeah. new way. Right, right. So. Yeah, I mean, I, it, it, I, I, I like it. I just think personally, I, 
if I would remember as soon as as soon as that ends and we hear that last line, life is a state of mind, I gotta hit my pause button to like have a few moments to just ponder and then I can watch the gag reel. <laughs> I now didn't I read at some point that this that there is a release out there where they it there is no gag reel, it actually goes to uh T V fuzz? Uh yes. I believe when they did that in the the initial video version I think when they first released it on on VHS I believe that's what they they changed it to um, actually as I'm looking at it when it opened soon after in Australia in late May 1980 the entire end credits were removed from all prints um, that was another option that they did leading to a deafening thud on the soundtrack after the film's final line um, and then they were all replaced with the white noise end credits so uh, yeah, it, it seems like they've kind of gone back and forth with with their preference for how this movie is ending. And obviously now the version that's out there is it goes back to um, Chance and his uh, or Peter Sellers and breaking character mm -hmm. cracking up on mm -hmm. set. So, yeah, that's the version I got. Yeah. All right. All right. Uh, let's let's talk about people. I mean, we talked about Peter Sellers, but uh, who else sticks out for you? Well, Melvin Douglas, I think, is is the other big one um, in this film for me. I I just absolutely love him as the old man, as as uh, Benjamin Rand. I think that the relationship between the two of them is so interesting, and I I love the way that he plays it. Um, he won an Oscar for this. Interestingly, Melvin Douglas was I, I guess he was so offended by the idea of being nominated opposite um, the kid in Kramer versus Kramer, uh, played by Justin Henry, that he refused to show up to the Oscars <laughs> <laughs> because he thought it was such a joke that he would be, uh, that this kid would be nominated opposite him. And so, so he didn't show up, and of course he won. He was, I guess, the only one who was not there, and he won. So... Um, but, uh, you know, he's he's just one of those great actors who's been around forever. I mean, he was, I, I think, a stage actor and then discovered by Gloria Swanson and brought into the world of film. And, you know, he's just one of those guys who made a great name for himself in film. And, man, he has uh, been around the block. I think he was nominated for one other Oscar um, with, uh, um, or he, sorry, he won one other Oscar for HUD back in 1964, another great film. And uh, just a man who's been around the block, and I think he brings a lot to this character, and I love the way he plays opposite Peter Sellers, and even Jack Warden, the way he plays opposite uh, the President of the United States, I think is, uh, there's something about that relationship there, and he just, he feels so right in the part. I, I think he definitely deserves all the kudos that he got for it. You know, it's a. I, I agree with you, and there's there's something about his portrayal and the way he uh, tr sort of translates the universe such that Chance the Gardener uh, becomes Chauncey Gardner. It, it's yeah. funny that he, you know, I get the sense that you know Douglas's Rand deep down really does understand, you know, Chance the Gardener. He understands what he's saying, and he has a connection and sort of a and and yet, uh, and it's his confidence in his awareness of who Chance the Gardener is that allows other people or that, that sort of allows that appreciation for Chance to spread like a virus. Mm -hmm. uh, I, yeah, think it's, because, I think he's great. 
I think he really is the one who, in a sense, becomes kind of the initial translator yeah. for Chance, because it's when Chance first meets the president uh, where when he starts kind of spouting this gardener talk, the president just looks at him like, what is this guy talking about? Yeah. And it takes Benjamin a moment to go, I think what our smart friend is saying is blah, 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 and really kind of translating it for him that all of a sudden that becomes something meaningful to the president. And then he's able to take everything that, that uh, Ch- Chance says as as wisdom. Right, right. Yeah, I think that ends up being an, an interesting conversation, that three-way conversation, where Chance just you know doesn't know when to let go of the hands. First of all, he, he grabs both <laughs> of the hands in an over-familiar fashion, and then he doesn't know when to let them go. And it's just this wonderful thing that, that suddenly to the president feels like a confidence he doesn't get. Mm-hmm. Uh, and ends up, you know, you know quoting him in his major economic speech. Uh-huh. And then plaguing the president. I mean, he then can't stop, you know, dwelling on everything having to do with chance. Who is this guy? Why is he so intelligent? Should I be worried? Should I not? And and it kind of kills his libido. And right. We have this sexual like dysfunction completely bit. impotent. Yeah, right? It's fantastic uh, that chance renders the, the president of the United States impotent. Yeah. Something uh, to be said for the, the power of the simple man. I right, guess. right, <laughs> right. Uh, and the lovely uh, Shirley MacLaine. Ah, yes, uh, playing Eve. Another interesting name exactly. to tie into this whole thing. You know, uh, Eve. I think she's great in this part. Although I always struggle through her masturbation scene. <laughs> It always hits me. I, I don't know. Maybe it's the way she's giggling through the whole is thing. It, I'm like, is this so awkward? Or it's you know what? It it is awkward that she's doing it with her hand on his leg, and then he gets up to do yoga, yeah, like <laughs> to do TV yoga, which and, and she's just giggling and saying, "Where did you go?" And I just, it's too much. It is a it's a wonderful, uh, it's a hysterical sequence. But I think you're right. It there's. There's room for discomfort, I think. She does it. She just is great. For me, uh, it's one of the best lines in the film, and I think it's because of the irony of it being Shirley MacLaine delivering it when she says, you know, that Chauncey, there's something you need to know about me. I'm a little shy. <laughs> you know, I, I that has me howling every time. Uh, but the, the sequence in particular that, that I love so much is when she interrupts his breakfast in bed. Uh-huh. And throws herself at him all over him, uh, and he doesn't respond because he doesn't know how to. And you know, she moves his blade out of the way, takes his napkin off, and then proceeds to just kiss him and kiss him and rub all over his face and his head in a really weird way. Uh, and then says, "You know, I'm I'm so grateful for your strength. <laughs> I could just really open up to you." He says, "I'm glad you didn't open up to me." <laughs> Uh, it, it's really, um, it's, I, I think her portrayal of this sort of incredibly sexually frustrated because she is, you know, as, as she is married to Ben, this significantly older man who's dying and they, they clearly don't have a physical relationship anymore. And so there he's, uh, she's dealing with the, the repression of being that, you know, uh, the sexual repression of of their relationship and and has been given permission essentially from Ben. I, I think their dynamic mm-hmm. is um, 
it is really interesting to watch. It is. And that's something about the relationship that always strikes me is how honest they are with each other. And just just those two actors, I think, really carry all of that so well. And I can really get a good sense of this this awkward relationship that is full of love and respect for each other, even if there's not a physical sense in there, you know? I haven't gone on my restraint bender in a while. <laughs> uh, but but I think, you know, when I when I think of the of just the construction of this film, that that is this is another one of those films that is really a case study in restraint because you you know that if this film had been written today, or if there was a remake, uh, mm-hmm. an about this uh, about last night style remake of being there. Yeah. Um it it would uh those are the these are the areas that would be magnified, right? First of all, there would be much more drama and intrigue around the um the threesome of Chauncey and Ben and right. the the what would be construed as infidelity of of Eve. Mm-hmm. There would be much more, um, uh, you know, a critical view of Chauncey, and there would be much more uh, uh, Jack Ryan-style intrigue around <laughs> around him not having a history. Right, right, right. Exactly. There, there would likely have been a missile launch at some point. <laughs> After the dinner with the Russians, a missile would be launched. Oh, that's really going crazy! Wow. Tell me, you don't agree. This I, is I an agree. exercise in restraint. You're, yeah, you are a I love screenwriter, it. son. Tell me that, that I'm not wrong. No, it's that you're absolutely right. It's, I think it's it's restrained in the right ways. And and like you said, yes, they start going down that that uh, hole of who is this guy? Where did he come from? Why can't we find anything? It's it's there, but it's not something that becomes uh, they, something that they dwell on. We get a little bit of it. They're concerned, but not to the point where they're they're overly worried and and we move past it i i love the way that that's structured you don't have to worry about that indeed all right who else do you want to talk about i love jack warden uh i think we talked about him in all the president's men mm-hmm. um i've just always loved him and uh, you know crazy like a fox i just i i can't ever get that out of my head when i see the guy yeah yeah he's a he's a great president too he just he really plays well, very well. Uh, our man Richard Dysart. Yes, indeed. Uh, go ahead. I, I, I was going to say, I, the thing that I like about what Dysart brings to the role is this quiet sensibility of Dr. Allenby. And even though he never really buys into uh, this misunderstanding of Chance the Gardener being Chauncey Gardner... I mean, he always feels like there's something amiss, and he's kind of the one whose eyes are more open. Or I should say he's just not as blinded by the wisdom of chance as everyone else is and investigates. But it's also quiet, and it's never done in a way like, I'm going to get to the bottom of this, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make things right. You know, it's, it's always just this quiet thing. And even when he does finally realize the truth, it's it's really just almost like a self-satisfaction sort of thing. He knows it. He talks to... Um, uh, David Clennon, the reporter, I mean, sorry, the lawyer uh, who had worked with him actually on the thing. Mm-hmm. They um, they have that great conversation in the bar where they they realize the truth about who uh, Chance is. But then it's like he says, OK, nobody can know about this. Just 
basically keep it hush-hush. And he just goes on kind of accepting it for what it is. And I, I think, yes, he now knows the truth, but because of what chance has come to mean to everybody else, I think he is just going to kind of turn a blind eye to it and let it be. And there's something about that quiet presence that he plays as Dr. Allenby that I really, really like in this film. I, I absolutely agree. And I think it's it's uh, it makes me happy every time he comes on screen because uh, he is, to me, the logical balance of the otherwise sort of, uh, I'm going to say faith-based, but I don't mean it you know, yeah, that right. way. Uh, you, you take everything else in the film, you're taking this sort of bit of, of, you know, just sort of the innocence you're taking on faith that this is, this is, um, uh, how the story is supposed to be put together. And I think, you know, what Dysart brings is a, a, a gentle challenge to the storyline. Uh, and I really appreciate that. Uh, um, this is where we start to get to the L.A. law, Richard Dysart. You know, this is yeah. the this is that sort of um, the gentle wisdom and the gentle challenge that I that I find so fascinating. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Uh, okay, uh, we you know I feel like we have to talk about uh, Governor Gatling, James Noble. James Noble. Uh huh. Governor Gatling on Benson. That's what? Right. That's right. What? That's right. I, I couldn't remember his name on Benson, but uh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, that was a surprise. I'd forgotten he was in there. It's always funny when I see him not being goofy. <laughs> he, he is <laughs> so pretty serious. straightforward in this, but it yeah. What was he, the uh, what was the butler's name? Uh, he had there were so many of these great sequences between Peter Sellers and the butler, who I know I can't uh, think of his name off the top of my head. Uh, he was you know in the elevator in particular. Yeah, that's uh, one of the the great moments. Is that that little bit where the uh, where he starts laughing in the yes. elevator? Oh, I'm sorry, I thought you were going to make another joke about the elevator. <laughs> one of one of your great jokes. <laughs> uh, fantastic. Yeah, uh, okay, so uh, talk talk to me about Hal Ashby. You know, Hal is a, a director. I mean, I, every time I see pictures of him, I mean, he always just looks like the ultimate hippie. I mean, he's just got crazy long hair big bushy beard and he's just one of those guys but he's a director who really directed a, a number of films that were really in a way kind of just about human nature and i really enjoy um watching his films he uh did win an oscar for editing he started as an editor he won an oscar for in the heat of the night um he actually i think was an editor on um it's escaping me right now um but it's on the tv in this it's uh oh geez what is it the steve mcqueen movie that was remade with um uh pierce brosnan oh uh with the hats yeah what's that called the, oh uh, for crying out loud i know Anyway, uh, he good. edited that, and that actually, that movie is playing in the background. I got to look it up because I'm going to just yeah. shame on me for not remembering it. But anyway, that's playing in the background when she's having her masturbation scene. Uh, or no, right. I think it's when when he kisses her, when he kind of goes crazy kissing her and all of that. And then stops. Uh, and then <laughs> stops. That's that's the movie that he's watching. Thomas Crown Affair. Duh. Thomas that's Crown Affair. Yeah, you should be embarrassed by that. I am embarrassed by that. Yeah. But... um. 
and then he moved into uh, directing in the in in 1970, and just created a number of uh, of films that really stand out as solid character films in the 70s. That to me always represent um, just just key elements of 70s cinema, like Harold and Maude, The Last Detail, Shampoo, Bound for Glory, uh, Coming Home, and Being There. Those films that he did in the 70s. Um, are, are the ones that have always stood out as like the Hal Ashby films. He went on to continue directing in the 80s, but I, I believe he ended up having a, I can't remember if it was an alcohol problem, something that was going on with him and his films, the quality kind of suffered a little bit as he went into the 80s and it kind of just didn't end up, uh, you know, the stuff that he ended up making a little later uh, just was not that great. Yeah, he became dependent on drugs and reclusive lifestyle and he ended up uh, uh, dying late in the 80s and never really, uh, I don't think he ever quite got his uh, his feet back on the ground to make any great films again that he was doing in the 70s. This is a, I mean, you look at his filmography, it's like a, uh, you know, it, it's it, it, it's like a switch was flipped. Yeah. Uh, you know, between being there and secondhand hearts, uh, where it just stopped being noticed. Yeah, right. It just became something that was, I mean, Secondhand Hearts just sounds just like a really, a really bad comedy. Well, and, and you know, 1982, looking to get out. Any, anything with the title that actually has the abbreviated ING with an apostrophe mm-hmm. is, uh, it's already circumspect. It's... I think the only one of his films that I saw um, uh, in the 80s was The Slugger's Wife, which was, I mean, is. Neil Simon, it, it should have been good by all accounts, but I mean, it was it was horrible. I really just had such a hard time with that. Uh, just kind of a baseball uh, comedy yeah. uh, that just didn't work at all for me. It was a pretty terrible film, and I think that was his last uh, or one. I guess not quite his last film. He did Eight Million Ways to Die after that, but yeah, I don't know. I I feel like he had a great run in the '70s, and that's what I like to remember Hal Ashby for. Let's go ahead and do that. Yes. Let's. And uh, the fabulous uh, script by uh, Jersey Kaczynski, uncredited, Robert C. Jones. Interestingly, uh, I guess there is this story in uh, from 1932. It's a Polish best-selling novel uh, by, I don't know how you pronounce the name, but I'm going to say Tadeusz Dolega Mostowicz called The Career of Nicodemus Dizma. This was a story written in Poland. It was very popular, and uh, it was made actually into a film in Poland in the 50s. This is a story of a small-town man who comes to the capital and accidentally somehow gets invited to this party where he happens to have a tux, and so everybody somehow misidentifies him as somebody famous and he ends up you know people it's it's the same story essentially of of uh chance the gardener and this nicodemus character was a i guess a very kind of popular character in poland as an archetype of the crude opportunist opportunist who makes his upwardly mobile way by dint of fortuitous connections and there was quite a controversy when jersey kaczynski published the novel being there because a lot of people said it sounded a lot like this story of Nicodemus Dizma. And I believe people accused uh, 
Kaczynski of plagiarizing and just <laughs> creating all these problems for him. And I, I don't know whatever ended up coming of that um, since it was a, a Polish film and, or a Polish story and he had written this here. Um, but uh, yeah, I don't know if it, I don't know how it ended up affecting Kaczynski, but I know there was a lot of people talking about how he was a, a plagiarist because of it. Dark. That's dark. <laughs> it is. It definitely is. Uh, the uh, let's see, film music by Johnny Mandel. I'm I'm sure you have the entire Johnny Mandel <laughs> cinematographic collection in your. I don't quite, but you know his themes in this. He has some nice themes. I do like them. They're very simple, very just kind of easy themes to kind of go along with. No, I, t I yeah, I absolutely agree. I don't I don't find the music offensive at all. I think it fits it's, very well with the tone of the film. The only music that really stands out for me, I mean, I think Mandel's score in this works well for the in the context of the film. The music that really always stands out for me is the disco version of Thus Spake Zarathustra yes. that plays when he first <laughs> leaves the house. Wow, yeah. that is something for the ages. Talk about setting the tone. <laughs> uh, it's wonderful. Yes. Uh, anybody else uh, on your list you want to cover before we uh, move on? I think the last one is uh, Caleb Deschanel as the uh, cinematographer. Um, he's definitely somebody who's been around for a very long time, still actively working in the business. Uh, Winter's Tale, he, a movie that's coming out next month, uh, he shot. Jack Reacher, he shot last year along with Abraham Lincoln, Vampire Hunter. I mean, his credits just go back all the way to the late 60s. So he is somebody who has been around for a long time. Boy, that's the truth. Yeah. Wow. I you know I don't think we've we haven't talked about a film of his yet, uh, and now I feel like uh, I feel like we're shortchanging him a little bit, um, because this film is I I mean one of the the lovely things about this film it feels like uh, well, one of his. We, we did talk about the natural. Oh, you're right. We did. Yeah. Oh, all right. Well, then we're not shortchanging him completely. <laughs> yeah, he does good work. <laughs> <laughs> see the natural footnote <laughs> uh, all right uh well i so this film um kind of my final comments i i i love this film i love that we're talking about this film um it it's a nice one to have in the collection um and i feel like i i watched it with some sort of renewed eyes um i was not uh, my memory of it was that it was it was slower it was it was uh, it was a bit of a bore uh, that the first time I saw it and that, uh, you know, it just didn't move on fast enough. I think I was, I was, uh, younger and probably in a hurry for something else uh, the first time I saw it. And, and this time I actually, I really sat down and, and just let it kind of wash over me. And I, I think it, it, it's left me with a very favorable impression of the film of the, just the, as I said in the beginning, it, the, the painting that it, it, uh, creates for me is, is, um, is really wonderful. And it, and it means so much more, uh, to know, uh, to understand more about Peter Sellers uh, uh, and and his role in getting this film, uh, yeah. you know the importance of this film to him uh, as a as a personal production, not just as a as another piece of a career. I, I think it it lends great credibility to the to the work for me. It is it's much more a work of passion, uh, and I love it. I loved watching it. 
Uh, it didn't yeah. feel long. It didn't feel. Uh, it didn't even feel particularly dated, as I said. I mean, I, I think a lot of that was handled by Peter Sellers, but but uh, you know, it's a '70s film that I think is it holds up remarkably well. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, you know, his his dedication to get this made. I mean, really is the reason that uh, that he stuck with it for nine years. I mean, the book came out in 1970, and uh, uh, you know he had gotten Hal Ashby on board, and the two of them fought to find funding for this for nine years, and it took a long time, but they finally did, and you know it paid off. I think this is just an absolutely fantastic film. It always strikes me as funnier than I remember every time I watch it. There's just so many things that uh, I just end up laughing out loud about. Um, yeah, just. Just a, it really just is a, a film that always stands out every time I watch it, and um, every time I watch it, it just makes me want to go watch it again. I totally agree. It's so dry. I I feel like I laugh in the wrong places, but it's only because I'm laughing just a few seconds too late. <laughs> so well, and it's because the way he delivers stuff. I mean, yeah, it all comes across in this way where nobody is in the movie, in the context of the story, is really sure how to take it. But as outsiders to the film, I mean, it, it's very easy to laugh at some of that stuff because, uh, you know, Sellers just brings this character to life. He really does. It is yeah. it is a really well-executed film. I say we should rank it. Let's rank it um, just real quick. I didn't find any numbers on this except that it made about $30 million in 1979 dollars. So that is almost $100 million in today's dollars. So uh, I don't know what it cost, but it, it did pretty well for itself. Holy cow. I just made the connection that Caleb Deschanel is Emily and Zoe Deschanel's dad. <laughs> connection made. Check. Mind blown. I just watched The New Girl today. That makes uh, it makes more sense to me. Wow. I wonder I if they were on set. Were they I born? I don't watch They're... the Bones thing, though. No. All right. Uh, yeah. So Flickchart. People, you know, you should go to Flickchart.com and you should uh, friend us. Flickchart.com slash The Next Reel. Uh, that's where you can find our uh, uh, the list of all of the films that we have talked about uh, and uh, our stack ranking of them. Yes, indeed. Here and here we go. Being There or Inside Man? Being hmm. There. Yeah, all right. Being There. All right. Yeah. All right. Being there or World War Z? Being there. Excellent. Being there or All the President's Men? All the President's Men. Another Jack Warden movie. Mm -hmm. I You're might cool. say being there. Ah, I know. It's a t it's, I, it, this is, I could go either way on this one, so I'll go All the President's Men. That's a really tough call. It's I real know. Um, being there or run Lola run. Oh, being there. That's absolutely being there. Being there or John Carpenter's the thing. Oh, a little dice art. Uh, <laughs> dice art on dice art action. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I'm going to say being there. Yeah, I am too. I, I mean, yeah. Being there or the world's end. Mm -hmm. Being there. That's a really hard one. I know. I, I, I actually could say, go either way. I want to say the world's end, but I feel like I should say being there. Just you know. I, don't, I don't know that that'll hold up under uh, the the pressure of history. I don't either, but we're going to be there for now. Being there or City of God? <sighs> wow, these are tough fights. I'm, I'm going to say City of God. 
I'll see, I think I'm still going to go being there. Mm. Mm. Come on, Raphael. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to cut you. Uh, okay. I, I, I mean, I'll give you being there. I, I you know, both of the films had a, a, a big impact on me. I think City of God had a had a bigger impact on me just, uh, you know, watching it more critically this time, the journey of those kids. Mm-hmm. Those kids in that place at that time. Uh, but but I, I, I'll give you... I'll give you right. He honest. he takes a remote control and clicks it at a gang. Those of you who's trying to change the channel to something more appealing. Disco Zarathustra. <laughs> All right, seventeen out of one hundred and thirty. Nice, nice go. placement. That is a pretty good placement. Yeah. yeah. Where do we oh. go from here? Next week we are going to finish up our Richard Dysart series, and we're going to uh, we're going to talk about the fantastic Pale Rider. Pale Rider. Is this a, it, when you say fantastic? Like, is it really? I mean, do you, give me a gut ranking. Is it better than being there? Pale Rider versus no, being there? No, it's not better than being there. Right. I like Pale Rider. I don't think it's. I, I think between this and uh, Outlaw Josie Wales, which we talked about uh, last year, I would do Josie Wales over Pale Rider. But I do like Pale Rider. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, yeah. I, it's been a long time since I've seen it. Yeah. Um. But you know, I, I mean, just in terms of of a Clint Eastwood piece. Mm-hmm. Uh. You know. The Nameless Stranger. I like it. Preacher. Yeah. Yeah, it's good stuff. All right. Uh, hey, this was uh, this was a treat. Always is. Yeah. Yeah, this is it's fun talking about good movies. No, this was a good one. This was a good one. Looking forward to that. And looking forward to uh, Steve Smart's choice for the listener's choice coming up in two weeks. Uh, so make sure you check your feeds this weekend. We're going to be doing, uh, again, Jack Reacher, Shadow Recruit. Nerd. <laughs> and with the film board I can't wait to see that uh, or maybe some of you can we'll see this weekend next real film board shadow nerd <laughs> a whole new spit on that movie <laughs> that's the truth I gotta go to bed Are you going to do another drum roll? <laughs> That's not nice. <laughs> Sometimes it's nice to bring that back. Sometimes it's just mean-spirited. Yeah. Bring back will... to the foolish drowning experience that I just had. <laughs> I don't know why you bring that up. You must because I, I'm not nice. You're a hater. <laughs> Pretend the trailer is running right now. I've been podcasting since 2006. In that time, I've tried countless hosting platforms. But in August 2022, we switched to Transistor to power all of our shows here at True Story FM. 
and it's been a game changer. I love the Transistor allows unlimited podcasts and storage without extra charges. We can publish so much content, and we do. If you want to start up a podcast, do yourself a favor and host your show on Transistor. With their one-click publishing, you can get your new show onto all the major podcast directories effortlessly. And their website builder lets you quickly build custom sites for each show. The detailed analytics are invaluable too. You can access all kinds of listener data anytime. Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better. After using countless hosting services over 15 plus years, Transistor has been hands down the best podcast partner for us. If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world, go to thenextreel.com slash transistor and check it out. Support our show and support your own show by going to thenextreel.com slash transistor. Start growing your podcast today. Today.